0: Future Proof with Jonathan McRae.
1: Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland on News Talk.
0: Hello and welcome to Future Proof the podcast. This is the show where we take a closer look at the world around us. I'm Jonathan McCrae. Coming up, despite the fact that Usain Bolt can sprint 100 meters in less than 10 seconds, As a species, we are extraordinarily slow. Just look at the common house cat. It would leave bolt for dust. Why is that? And what makes animals go so fast? We'll be finding out in a few minutes' time. If you'd like to contact us, you can do so by emailing us. I don't know what's happened to my voice there. You can email us, science at newstalk.com. You can also find us on Twitter. We're at Newstalk Science. It was a case of my voice trying to catch up with my brain. Uh, First, though, it's time to look back at some of the week's science news and joining us is Dr. Shane Bergen from UCD and Dr. Lara Duncan. You're both very welcome. Our first story, Lara, has to do with pigs back from the dead. Zombie pigs.
1: Zombie pigs, exactly. And I know you really wanted to say before we get into the real part of the show, let's (laughs) do the terrible part of the show. But that's okay. Don't worry. Me and Shane don't mind. Um, This is the fluff. This is the, let's let's do the fluff first. So look with a with a headline and an introduction like zombie pigs. Um, I suppose people are expecting a really really exciting story here, and I, I suppose it is a scientifically very very interesting story. And it was published in Nature, and it came from the Yale um, University, and it is fascinating. So what they did was they took um, healthy young pigs, and they anesthetized them, and intubated them, um, and then they caused them to go into cardiac arrest so they gave them an electric shock to the heart, which stopped their heart and they left them at room temperature. And an hour later, they started to perfuse them with their own blood, but their own blood mixed with a cocktail of other chemicals, things, for instance, to stop clotting in the body, to suppress the immune system um, and, and a range of other things. And they did a control where they used ECMO. ECMO is the kind of thing that we use in ICU, for instance, where you do the job of the body's heart and lungs. So you take the blood out, you you clean it up, and you put it back in. And what they found was that in the group that got this Organ X solution, which is what they're calling it, because they did this four years ago with brains only, and they called it Brain X. So now it's Organ X. They found that there was um significantly, according to them, more activity in lots of the organs. So some of the cells in the heart started to function again and some started to contract. The liver cells produced a lot more albumin, which is a type of protein, um, and the overall the cells of the organs were in a slightly better state than they were in the pigs who had died and used the ECMO. So the headlines are zombie pigs. So one of the things that did happen is they injected the pigs on organ X with contrast and they started to twitch um, and that didn't happen in any of the other groups. And I think that's probably where the headlines are all coming from. So let me just reiterate, this is a very interesting study because and only because it can show that some organs might be able to be treated with a, sol- a nutrient solution in order to keep those organs slightly more healthy before they are transplanted. And that is is the only thing that this shows. Now, the headlines are suggesting that this is going to redefine what we consider to be death. <laughs> it, like, you know, it is just, the headlines are insane. The research is good. This is not the research's fault, but the headlines are crazy. And I think people need to remember that most people who die, it is a slow process that results in their death. Most people don't die suddenly and they don't die from something they can come back from. So this is not going to be some sort of reanimation, flatliners type future, in my opinion anyway, in my humble opinion. But the science is exciting and I think if it can make organs remain in a healthier state so that they can be transplanted in humans, that would be wonderful.
0: Um, Hypothetical scenario, uh, humans uh, literally about to die. Is this solution possibly something that would give them a few more minutes perhaps to allow surgery or is using... Uh, cold um, ice and, and so on or or other products much more effective than, than this might ever be?
1: Uh, in my opinion, absolutely. I mean, it is proven that people who, for instance, drown in very cold water can be revived after six significant periods without any significant brain damage. These pigs' brains were... were- you know, for want of a better word, dead. I mean, completely dead. There was no right. electrical activity. People are not coming back after this. I can see a future where it could be perfused into a person who had passed away and was going to be an organ donor. It is not right. going to be a future where an hour after death, your brain comes back perfectly. It's, it's just, it's not in the cards, in my opinion.
0: Okay, excellent. Shane, our second story, I suppose, is one that highlights the fact that the JWST is not the only telescope in town.
2: Absolutely Jonathan and if Lara's story was about zombies, this one's about another horror story Goldilocks and specifically planets in Goldilocks zones uh, around Goldilocks
0: and, isn't a horror uh, story
2: it doesn't end well
0: Jonathan well that's true I mean I thought, but it doesn't end well for the bears <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, mass violence, three deaths, you know, on Goldilocks' hands. No one ever gets into this.
1: <laughs> yeah. I yeah, forgot, I actually forgot that that was the end because I only ever watch it with my kids. And in the end, they all become friends. But I forgot in the real story, the bears die, don't they?
0: They were called grim fairy tales for a reason. Anyway, Shane.
2: Anyway, yeah. So this, this is a, a Japanese uh, Earth-based telescope based in Hawaii called Subaru. Uh, not to be mistaken with the car. And uh, recently, it had a new detector fitted, one that could look in the infrared, so slightly beyond the visible light that our eyes can see. And they did that because they wanted to look at uh, red dwarf stars, which are dimmer than stars like our our sun. Um, And they tend to be about a fifth of the solar mass. They account for three quarters of all stars in the Milky Way. So there's many of them, and they may have planets going around them um, in the so-called Goldilocks zone, where liquid water can exist on the surface, thus having a higher probability of something alive being there. And uh, they found one, and it didn't take them too long. They're calling it Super Earth, as if Earth here weren't super enough. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's called uh, planet Ross 508b, b being the second planet from from the star uh, Ross 508 and yeah, so what? It's incredible how they do this. They look for the, uh, the the light that comes from the star, and then they look for a tiny wobble in that light. Uh, and and that wobble it can actually account for the, the 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 gravity of the of the light going around it. And so they're they're able to remarkably detect a planet um, from just looking at the flicker of a light uh, of a light source from a star.
0: How far away is this a super Earth?
2: Yeah, that's an important part of the story. It's really close. Uh, well, I suppose in terms of space, it's really close. It's 37 light years away. So uh,
0: that I thought you were going to say it's behind you. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, it might be. <laughs> so it's 30, 37 light years away, which means if you were traveling at the speed of light, it would take you only 37 years to get there. So um, yeah, this is really, really close. And what they're excited about here is that, um, you know, they found it with relative ease looking at a red dwarf. They said there's lots of red dwarfs out there. So therefore, there's probably lots of planets like this around other red dwarfs. Can we go look at them? For signs of, of various gases in their atmospheres that might indicate whether there's life there or not.
0: Fantastic. Um, our third story Lara has to do with synthetic embryos. What is this about?
1: This is a cool story. I have to say this came from the Wiseman Institute in Israel um, and it was published in Cell um, which is another very very reputable um, journal and what they did was they took pluripotent stem cells which are cells that have the potential to turn into any type of cell and they treated them again with a kind of a cocktail of, of different proteins and um, factors. And they found that in a very, very, very small percentage of them, so 0.05%, they were able to turn them into embryos. So not just stem cells that could create any cell, but an actual embryo with a placenta, a yolk sac and small little organs that were starting to grow. And they nurtured them in what they, they call this sort of external womb. They did research on this a few years ago and published quite interestingly showing where they could they could keep real mouse embryos alive in this external womb environment. So now they've done it with these completely synthetic embryos and they're able to keep them alive for at least a week and see quite significant organ formation that they feel um, would have developed into full organs were they allowed the time. Now, the reason that this is ethically so significant is because they did implant these synthetic embryos into mice and they were not able to form mice that could be born alive so this is why it's so significant because if you can make this work in humans if you choose and if it's ethically approved then what you're working with is not an embryo is not something that has the potential to be alive but it is something that has the potential to create cells or organs that might be able to be used to replace those in people that are unwell, but has not got the potential to become alive. So it bypasses a lot of the ethical issues that go along with working with embryos. Now, at the moment, this is all done in mice. It's very early stages. No organs came from it, so there's a huge amount of work left to be done. But it's quite fascinating and ethically, it's a very interesting paper.
0: Um, When when you say embryo, uh, embryo is is the early stages of uh, a a fertilised egg Beyond that, right? We're talking about a fertilized egg. How is that possible with using just growth factors and stem cells?
1: Yeah, no, that's exactly it. So, to get an embryo, you have to have a sperm, which has half of the chromosomes, and an egg, which has half of the chromosomes, and they combine to give you a full set of chromosomes. So, what they've done is they've started with a cell, which is just a normal cell, but it has the full set of chromosomes. And they have, with trickery and lots of different chemicals, taught it to be as if it were an egg that had just been fertilized with a sperm. Wow. So it starts from scratch and becomes an embryo. It's amazing. I mean, it has this whole a placenta, and egg sac, everything that goes along with an embryo. It's really fascinating work, but with no sperm, no egg and currently no potential for life, which is what I think is the most interesting part.
0: So what exactly would these embryos that 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 cannot go on to be living Things. what exactly would these embryos be useful for? Embryonic I mean, stem cells?
1: Yeah, well, no, look, let's be honest. In a mouse, it's going to be useful for absolutely nothing. But, you know, in if it were to develop into human research where you could create something that could make basic organ cells or blood cells, you know, if you needed to do a bone marrow transplant, that kind of thing, this would be an amazing way to potentially do it. Um, so it's to try and bypass the use of real embryos in the future, which is completely illegal, obviously, in, in most countries currently. So it, it could work that way.
0: OK, and our final story, Shane, has to do with friendships.
2: It does. And whether you have friends in a different socioeconomic group than uh, than your own. And so this is uh, an incredible two back to back papers published in Nature this week from uh, economists in Harvard, and they looked at people's Facebook uh, connections. They looked at an incredible 21 billion Facebook connections, over 72.2 million Facebook, remember that? Users in the United States, all of whom were between 25 and 44 years old, an incredible 80% of people in that category in the United States have used Facebook, which is, I think that's remarkable. So they looked at a new measure of so-called social capital, um, and particularly childhood friendships that you had. And they found that uh, the types of friendships you have as a child uh, are linked to economic mobility later in life. So if, if you are a person um, from let's call it poor and rich just to be crude but it's it's easy if you if you have a good mixing of poor and rich people at an early stage in their lives then you're going to have greater degrees of social mobility i.e people who start their lives poor have a greater chance of increasing their wealth and um, through their lives versus if you have communities where those two groups are quite separate and people have more bias then people kind of basically stay where they are uh, in their lives or are more likely to.
0: But how does um, this data set show which people are real friends and um, and what sort of relationship you have with them? It's surely not taking friends as a friend a real friend because i'm looking through my facebook list of friends right now and i don't know who, who half these people are <laughs> like does it does it uh, look at how many interactions you've had with them with a the young for a long time or like how does it know what a friend is
2: yeah, it is more sophisticated than just saying, you know, Jonathan's friend with this guy he met like years ago. Yeah, uh, you know, it's it's it. So it looks at childhood. Guy? It looks at childhood friendships, right? It looks at friendships you formed when you were younger. Okay. Because you you didn't have any uh, wealth yourself at that stage, so your your tendency to make friends is not based. Uh, they say on your current economic status, but more so back then it was just based on, on on your parents' economic status. So they looked at these friendships that you had from when you were a child. They also look at the kind of the degree of connectedness in those friendships. So like, are the friends of, are your friends friends with some of your other friends? So is there a kind of a cohesiveness? Is there a network going on there? Man. And. Um, This is effectively a a big study that shows the the reality that is the old boys club. Why do people send their kids to private schools? It's not necessarily because the teaching is better around like that. It's all about connections, those connections stay with you through your through your lives. And this study whilst interesting, has been showing something that sociologists have known for hundreds, if not thousands of years.
0: I, I went to a private school, but um, all of the people who I hung out with were the non-rich ones. <laughs> and so my, my, my time at St. Andrews has not really hugely benefited me on a, on a, on a monetary level, but he, it has enriched me as a person. And that's important. (laughs) I am just looking at all the people on Facebook. I haven't been on Facebook in about 20 years, and I'm looking at all the people who I knew vaguely, and they've changed so much. After the show, I'm going in a total Facebook friend um, wormhole. Uh, But for now, uh, Dr. Shane Berger from UCD and uh, Dr. Lara Dungan, thanks so much. I remember the feeling of complete exhilaration, the awe I felt watching Usain Bolt set the current 100-meter world record in Berlin in 2009. I remember where I was and what I was wearing. It was amazing. But now, looking back, knowing what I know, I realize it wasn't that amazing at all. Usain Bolt isn't that fast. In fact, no matter how much training any human does, even if we were to use performance-enhancing drugs, even then... The best of us couldn't outrun the common house cat. Why is that? Well, Michael Gunther is a researcher in biomechanics at the University of Stuttgart and has been driven his entire life to understand what makes things go fast. Well, Michael, you're very welcome. Why have you been so interested in the speed of animals?
3: Well, I'm a trained physicist and uh, I entered biomechanics 31 years ago. Well, I wanted to understand how um, biological animal movement, human movement, uh, is generated, synthesized by, by nature. And in particular, uh, I st- I, um, from the very beginning, I was interested in legged movement. The reason for, why you contacted me is about maximum running speed of animals. Mm. And, uh, and well, yes, that's a continuous interest in how is movement generated, how has nature designed by which criteria which are the laws which are the rules behind to design an apparatus for example to run very fast
0: so how fast can a human run and how does that compare to animals
3: well if you compare to animals to the animal kingdom then you compare across sizes the fairest comparison is to compare to an animal of the same size so if you compare humans to animals at, at the same size Big cats, for example, uh, leopards, cheetah are a little bit uh, more lightweight, but lions and these these predators. And uh, if you're looking at, let's say, horses, which are a little bit bigger, or gazelles or big gazelles, then they might, let's say big gazelles, they may be on the same, uh, maybe about the same size, and they are much faster than, than humans. So humans are <laughs> you could say, crap in, in, maximum, run, in <laughs> maximum running speed.
0: <laughs> yeah, so we, we can run just over 40 kilometers an hour for we're very fast. That's our max possible right. speed. But some of, right. these, um, some of these animals are clearly cheetahs uh, because they use four legs, and that allows them to run very fast. In, in the case of cheetahs over 100 kilometers, antelopes just below that, and warthogs yeah. and hares around 60 kilometers. So um, yeah. is the fact that they're running on four legs already... A game changer does that propel them much faster than if they were to somehow walk on two legs for example
3: well it's not the number of of legs it's it's really? more the arrangement uh, of the legs during movement uh, they use four legs but that means it's an indirect advantage the indirect advantage is Let's say, the advantage of, turn it around, the advantage of humans is a metabolic one, uh, an energetic one. They are very strong in endurance compared to many animals. And that's because they have an uh, upright posture and they uh, erected their whole body. And that also means they align their trunk uh, in parallel to uh, gravity, to the gravitational vector, which is vertical to the ground. And this is what uh, animals like cheetahs didn't do. Um, they are in parallel to the ground, and um, that makes the, the, the so there is an indirect um, advantage of having four legs because then you can run in uh, uh, arrange your trunk parallel to the ground, and that means you can deploy a flexible spine to pr- prolong your, your leg functionally. OK, you can flex and extend the spine, in particular in the lumbar region, not you, but animals, yeah. cheetahs, and, and we cannot. So that makes the real difference in particular. That means you can prolong the leg by the spine. And that's, that's a big advantage of animals having their um, trunk in parallel to the ground. And for that, of course, except for kangaroos. Kangaroos can hop and they can hop very fast, much faster than humans. So they are nearby the fastest runners in the world, but they are hoppers. Although they only have two legs, but they also have a big tail, but that's another story.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so there's lots there and already I'm learning stuff I didn't realize. So having our bodies standing up erect on two legs means that we use much less energy over time and that allows us to to run for longer distance because we we right. the way we beat animals essentially was long distance we we sweat and we are able to run for long distances whereas animals can't right. mostly do either
3: is that right yeah you yeah one hunting strategy i forgot the term but it's hunting down an animal over te- over days by fatiguing them uh how do you call this kind kind of hunting it's um exhausting <laughs> yeah. Well, exhausting. Yeah. Ex- I may, I, I, there is a technical term. I yes, I'm on, sure there is. Uh, I don't know it. But it's uh, That that is a, that is a strategy that humans could do. Um, but it's not only the upright trunk. What um, what the strategy of animal uh, of humans was in particular uh, to become very efficient is to. Um, align align the leg along its uh, axis that means if you have an let's say you have a hip and you have a a toe so that's uh, that's the leg okay the Hmm. definition and if you now then extend all the uh, the joints then I would call this or we would call this alignment alignment with the axis that means the joints come near to the leg axis and that makes it mechanically efficient so it's not only erecting the 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 spine but combined with that also aligning your 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 joints this is by the way not only an efficiency thing but also a question of loads yeah if you see that if you have small animals they have crouched legs uh, or sprawled in reptiles or, or spiders but for example horses and even more than um Giraffes or elephants—they have strongly aligned legs, and that's because their gravity or the gravity, their weight is so heavy compared to the uh, to the structures that have to bear it in the leg. That it's better to to, to align the legs, that mean bring it near to the axis. But so this is a, a force and also combined with a, an energy e- efficient uh, strategy.
0: So uh, all of those factors combined are one thing but my my guess is without knowing fully the answer that the the fastest animals must surely have a size to leg leg strength ratio that is favorable right so they they are not right. not super heavy but their legs are enormous is that the fastest runners yeah. is that how they do it
3: well <laughs> um if you are Uh, compare crouched and aligned, so stretched legs. If you are crouched, you have a a disadvantage in terms of forces that you have to apply and energy, but you have an advantage in um, extending your leg. That means a muscle induces a faster leg lengthening rate. So the leg becoming at the end points becoming faster if it is crouched. <laughs> so there is a trade-off between force and, and uh, lengthening velocity. Right. Um, the cheetah, for example, is able to have pretty crouched legs still because it's not too big but except for, except for its spine it can also make an advantage of its uh, naturally crouched um, anatomical leg joints that means the hip, uh, the knee and the ankle joints. So that's an ad- additional advantage starting from a crouched position is an ad- additional advantage for in, in favor of uh, of speed right. and 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 these animals 40 50 kilograms cheetah that's a paradigm they are not too heavy to, uh, to to overcome or at least to to overload their structures an elephant cannot run with that crouched leg posture anymore. That's impossible, absolutely impossible because bones yeah. and tendons and so on wouldn't wouldn't stand the stress yeah. forces per, per area.
0: That makes sense. And that's the limit
3: I, that's a limiting factor at the at uh, the big size. Does it doesn't mean it wouldn't size. be
0: something very interesting to see though. Be <laughs> be very interesting <laughs> to see. Um,
3: so if you yeah. look at uh, knowing
0: what you know about biomechanical forces is it possible that you could design an animal to be faster than the cheetah, taking in everything that you know? Or has nature given to, to certain animals all of its
3: gifts? Well, if we go down to the small scale, to the spiders, for example, they have extremely crouched legs, more than a cheetah. And if you would extend, for example, if you would have very slim but crouched um, legs equipped also with muscles that are let's say amplified in their velocity capacity that means you add springs elastic springs in uh, in series to to fibers which is done in mid-size and big-size animals but uh, that's called tendons so if you add th- three things up First of all, a very long leg compared to the masses that you want to carry. That means a small trunk, a lightweight trunk, but slim, slender uh, and long legs that are crouched and that are equipped with muscles with tendons. Then you would become really fast. But of course, you must also look at the, at the, the air drag. The air drag comes in at bigger sizes. Um, I, could, I would guess you could pimp up a big spider with the, the appropriate high-tech materials, lightweight and strong. You might construct, uh, let's say, a spider of 100 kilograms that is faster than a cheetah. Maybe. A, a spider of
0: 100 kilograms that would be faster than a cheetah. <laughs> wow. <laughs> but when you describe this crash leg thing, which is just essentially... That the, the legs bend and you describe sort of elastic bangs. The immediate thing that I thought of was a cricket, and the cricket have these um, crickets have this amazing jumping power because of these yeah. huge legs that they have in comparison to their body, and they're also crouched. But they don't use them obviously for running. Um, no,
3: it's not possible because. So, sorry if I interrupt. This, no. because it's only a one-time thing. Um, um, a cricket jumps, as you said. Jumping is a one-time thing running is a cyclic thing. So you must, re- you must come back to the starting point of the movement and, uh, nearby. Uh, that means repetition, that means cyclic thing. And a cricket doesn't do, and they deploy a different mechanism. What they do is the medieval uh, catapult thing. They just pump up some elastic structure, uh, slowly, and, and then all of a sudden they release a, a, um, a snap and, and and then you release the catapult. That means you release all the energy saved in elastic potential, we say potential energy or elastic energy, that is saved in some structure, uh, and it is really stored in some st- structure, and then it is released within a very short time. So the energy is released within very short time, and that uh, catapults the cricket a long distance, but they cannot repeat it immediately because they need some time to uh, reload their structure. and. And you cannot do that within the uh, cyclic uh, in, in a cyclic movement like a cheetah right. does. It you know must that. to be prepared again immediately, and that's a that's a big difference.
0: Are shorter runners always going to be slower than longer runners, or is there some sort of trade off there?
3: There is trade off. Let's okay. Let's do it that way. If you are a two meter guy and you have Kind of muscles, muscle fibers that are uh, optimized for endurance. Okay, these f- kind of fibers. So they're different fibers in nature. Uh, there is a distribution within the body in any body, but for example, a sprinter uh, type of of uh, of a sportsman has a, a higher, clearly significant higher share ratio of white fibers which is a description but they are the faster ones they can contract at higher um, rates of contraction than red ones which are uh, appropriate for endurance oh. so if you are so if you are a big guy of 1 2 meters uh, but your your, your g- genetic equipment is uh, more with red fibers you don't have any chance against a guy who is 150 but who has a, a big ratio big share of of white fibers. So that's also an ingredient. And by the way, the fiber contraction velocity is the basic fundamental player in scaling of of speed. So from mites uh, at body masses of about 10 to the power of minus eight kilograms, up to big dinosaurs at this uh, at about 10 to the power of five, that means 13 orders of magnitude size between these animals, the speed scale, uh, so, so the bigger, uh, in general, the bigger are, uh, are faster. And wow. it's just because, it's just, uh, first of all, if the, uh, if the body mass increases, that the size increases, means the trunk as a typical scale increases, and also all muscles increase in length. And right. this, increasement in length, this increasing in length is the basic reason for increasing speed when you become bigger. But there is an optimum at the animals about 50 kilograms.
0: Uh, finally, uh, Michel, is it possible to improve the speed of humans using simple tricks from what you've discussed? Is it possible to create faster running humans from adding some sort of non-electric equipment to the body uh, say for example well-positioned elastics or support in certain areas do you think
3: i could imagine either either some elastic equipment uh, in parallel to the joints externally orthosis called orthosis but also prolonging the leg that means let's say let it run on 10 centimeter springs maybe and adapt uh, maybe also let's say um, how oh, it's difficult maybe you need additional equipment it's it's not easy to to optimize in a in a, in a multi-parameter space immediately uh not right now but but making legs longer and more elastic in principle would be a thing but you must of course do the cyclic thing and that means uh, some kind of compensation is needed it can well be that you need then a little bit stronger arms or you need more stout trunks or i cannot really immediately predict that but yeah, uh, that's
0: that's the, the, the question. The six year old in me is is wondering. But uh, it's been fascinating speaking with you uh, from the University of Stuttgart. Michael Gunther. Thanks for your time. Thanks, well. So a bit of inspiration for your weekly run there. Um, Aidan McKelvey, our producer, joins us to go through some of your comments from last week. Are you a runner?
4: I'm Do you not, run? not a no, I'm not a runner, but I sometimes find with these uh, kind of scientific discoveries that like common sense would have told you that anyway. I have I've a nice family of wild cats that we feed out at the car park of our uh, apartment block, and I have often tried to pet the cuter ones of the family and never got anywhere near them.
0: So I, well, I knew well, hang on. <laughs> you, you're, these are not your cats. You've like like unsolicited petting random cats in the street. <laughs>
4: Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm not in the street. They come to our car park and they right. look. They they literally like we're on the first floor. They're very cute. Uh, they, and they come and they manipulate us. Like you, you'll be cooking the dinner. You look out the kitchen window, and the cat will be looking right up the window, mm. just waiting for you to be there. And he's like, "Here, where's my uh, where's my dinner?" So we call uh, the the kind of the main culprit who is extremely cute garçon because he's standing <laughs> there going. Uh, Garcon, where's my dinner? Um, oh, and yeah. So I've often tried to pet him because uh, he's so cute, but he's, he's out, out with me and out me.
0: You young people are adorable. Um, <laughs> right, let's get to some of it. How, how, how are you anyway? Good? You're in good form?
4: Yeah, very very good form. How are you?
0: Yeah, good. You need to, you, <laughs> every good week time. I say, give me more <laughs> than just I'm fine. My eight-year-old <laughs> gives me I'm fine. I need more than that if we are to exchange um, some sort of pleasantries. Right, forget hey, it. Never mind. No, lo- no, I forget gave you it. A car, you did. you car, gave the, the lovely did. He did.
4: He anecdote. The, Come the on. Cat anecdote. Okay, <laughs> fine.
0: Um, so last week, we were talking to Christopher French, um, a professor in psychology about ghosts and why we see them. And uh, we got this um, message saying, I was just six years old when I woke up screaming after seeing my mother's godmother in the bedroom. My parents had to get me up and calm me down. Ten minutes after, I was brought downstairs and my mother got a call to say her mother had passed away. Coincidence? I don't think so. Um I, I do think so, but it is, <laughs> it, is, it is a bit mad, though. That Obviously, that must happen if we think about it. We dream about all sorts of people, all sorts of things. Every once in a while, those two things must coincide. And when they do, totally understand why people are like, that was a premonition or that's a ghost. But numbers say otherwise, right?
4: Yeah, right? And like a, p- a pivotal question there, I suppose, not to be r- ultra cynical about it, but um, if the godmother was sick, you know, that might have been mentioned in the background. That's going to influence what you dream, your about. dream, you, what yeah. you dream about. Have you ever seen a ghost? No. <laughs> I, I did not expect a yes answer.
0: Me, <laughs> me in the mirror in January this is the closest I've ever gotten. Um, oh, no,
4: I have that as well. Have you ever seen a UFO? No. I've seen a UFO. Well, I mean, I don't, I'm not, not a person who believes necessarily there are aliens flying around. But or you saw something that couldn't quite explain four times four times <laughs> in my life twice when i was a teenager and, and twice in the last year
0: well, look if if you've seen ufos four times and have not been in, abducted once then you need to take a long hard look at yourself <laughs> <laughs> anthony anthony galway says hi i was going to text in my supernatural experience but since you're laughing your head off i won't okay i will the existence of the universe how did that happen Um, Yes, indeed, that is a, um, it is a supernatural question. I often talk about the supercluster Lanakenea, which we talked about on the program uh, a couple of years back, I think it was. Google it now, the supercluster Lanakenea or Lanakea. And it is um, a model of the universe uh, as, as best as we can put together and if you look at it it is the most extraordinary image because it looks like our you, our solar system is just one in a huge flow of stars that seem to f- follow a very organic vein-looking shape and as i said on the program before it really does make me wonder when when you see something like that you go that really looks like something biological maybe we're all sort of molecules inside a giant being Stomach. after all i don't know yeah exactly maybe we're the the yeah, groin <laughs> or the spleen of a higher consciousness who knows we got another email on this um i called lara a lapsed immunologist i think and uh we get this email in uh, from someone who doesn't say who they are do they know do we know who they are
4: uh, we know who they are but they don't want their Indeed. name mentioned.
0: okay they say hi jonathan and lara Once an immunologist, always an immunologist. Fair enough. Uh, They say, great piece on sleep paralysis and outer body experience. However, I'm surprised neither of you mentioned where these phenomena most occur often. And indeed, one of the easiest to study, e.g. in people with REM sleep disorders, especially narcolepsy. I didn't know that. As a person with narcolepsy, I've had many such experiences, though I'm reassured that my psyche must be very relaxed because I usually experience benign phenomena, such as my cat sitting on my chest, rather than monsters. I can often also hear what's going on in the room, and it becomes part of the dream in a garbled way, which can be fun or confusing when I remember stuff incorrectly later. For a bit of context, we were speaking to Chris French, and he was saying that some people have this sleep paralysis thing, And uh, they imagine something sitting on their chest, but it can be sort of explained by the fact that part of your body still hasn't woken up yet. Um, Anyway, this email goes on to say, people with narcolepsy can also manifest the sleep paralysis of REM sleep while awake as well. When we dream, we release serotonin and the release of this prompts the paralysis. However, serotonin produced in response to strong emotions while awake is recognized by the brain as being different. So the person is not paralyzed. In our case, the brain just says, oh here's some serotonin. Paralyze your one over there uh, accordingly. So the attacks can vary from crossed eyes to a dropping head to a slumped and seemingly fainted body. Conversely, a person who sleepwalks also has the opposite fault in in REM sleep paralysis mechanism in that it doesn't work and the person can get up to all sorts while still asleep, often a phenomenon that children grow out of. So obviously sleepwalking. Um, don't read my name out, please, but happy to have a chat with you sometime if you're interested in delving into this more. I have 30 years experience now having got narcolepsy in my early 20s. I'm going to I was going to say you poor thing, but you seem to be fine about it. So um, thank you. Yes, we might. We might follow that up. Um, thanks so much, much for your email. Um Seamus from the Hills and Kerry says, Jonathan, I am a fan of your program, but your chat with the inverted commas professor on the readings, etc. was so limited that it reflected as shallow or light science. Did you ever hear of Edgar Sace? Um I must confess, I haven't. So it's a weekend reading for me. Look, I I, I think you've been said of the program that it's summertime. It is. It's an interesting one, but I would agree. I find psychology very shallow in in, in discussion, I mean, I know there's a lot of science to it, but I, I do find it hard to talk about without going, really, or obviously, <laughs> which I mean are two almost polar opposite. But there you go, that's psychology. Um, that's it, I suppose, from your comments from last week. Um, unless you've anything further to add, Aiden? Uh,
4: no, you also hate paleontology. <laughs> so well,
0: I don't hate paleontology. I just think. <laughs> It's it's they it's, it's just it's constantly it revised. <laughs> well, no, it's just <laughs> paleontologists change their minds all the time, like, and that's fine. But then they fight with each other over it in a, in a way I find very amusing. But it does seem like we have no idea what happened more than a hundred years ago. Like more than a hundred years ago, your guess is as good as mine. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's not true, is it? Um, Right. That's uh, where we will finish this. Stream of Consciousness, Aidan McKelvey, producer Simon Keane, Steve Daunt, and Jojo Cardozo uh, put this show together. I was merely the voice. Um, Thanks for listening and subscribing. We'll see you on Tuesday with a really interesting chat with a guy called Ben Novak. Uh, Ben is working for uh, an organization that are trying to use the latest technology to either bring back um, extinct species, not in a weird Jurassic Park way, or to help prevent the extinction of a uh, very um, endangered species now really interesting chat don't miss it that's next tuesday in your podcast feed in the meantime stay curious future proof with jonathan mcrae
1: proudly supported by science foundation ireland
3: sunday morning at 10
4: on news talk